and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 107, recorded on May 26th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. We have a packed week, like a whole range of news stories. So let's kick things off with a brand new, faster than ever, Firefox release. Yeah, Firefox 67. And Mozilla are very proud of this release, saying that it is their fastest ever. And I've been running this for a few days, and I've not noticed it be any slower, but I can't say I've noticed it be any faster. What about you? Oh, that's funny. You know what? I noticed it immediately. I noticed it specifically in the way that Firefox paints the web pages now. And I did some looking into it, and it turns out there's some reason. First of all, they deprioritized the least commonly used features, so they they just did a full review of all of the areas they felt could cause delay on delivering that painting effect of the web page. And they went through there and they looked at things like delaying the set timeout in order to prioritize scripts for things you need first, while maybe delaying other components on the website. So this looks really great on um, uh, Amazon or on Twitter or on Instagram, where you'll see it will load the components necessary for you to navigate and read the page. And then the really complex little objects that are just sort of add-ons, it, it adds those second and adds the images second, like so that you immediately get the content. And the other thing that's very nice is if you're in a low memory situation, which Firefox deems to be lower than 400 megabytes of free RAM, it will now auto-suspend unused tabs. It has some sort of timeout. If you haven't looked at them for a while, it just puts them to sleep. I, I, that's great. That I noticed the painting stuff, but having you know a whole bunch of tabs open is sometimes a bad habit of mine. So having that suspend feature could be very nice. Well, maybe it's because I relatively recently built this fairly fast machine, and Firefox has just felt fast ever since then. But I don't know. I just don't, don't see it. I mean, now that you're talking about that painting thing, I've opened a few tabs and I can kind of see it. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just not observant enough. I think maybe if I went back to the old version, yeah. then I'd suddenly notice it. That's always the way with speed improvements for things. Like I remember putting an SSD in my wife's laptop and said to her, so have you noticed it's faster? She's like, no, not at all. I was like, right, I'm putting your hard disk back in. And then she's like, oh, okay, yes, this is significantly slower. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, and I think I noticed it more because I was coming from Chrome as my daily driver and when I saw the Firefox update come down, which I got to say, both Fedora and Ubuntu updated pretty quickly. When I saw it land, I was like, all right, I got to give this a go. And I noticed it because it's different than how Chrome renders the web page. And I think I prefer it. Something else they slipped in 67 is what they're calling the world's fastest AV1 decoder. AV1 is a new video decoder by Dave1D, which is now enabled by default in Windows, OS X, and Linux builds of Firefox, both 32-bit and 64-bit. And it claims files that are 30% smaller than VP9 WebM codecs and 50% smaller than H.264. And the other cool thing about this is that it's sponsored by the Alliance for Open Media, which is a joint effort between Videoland, the VLC folks, and FFmpeg. And it's baked into Firefox 67 now. Yeah, we talked about AV1, oh, it must be a couple of months ago now, and that is a royalty-free video codec. And it looked like it was going to be a bit of a kind of slow transition over to it, but... Thanks to being baked into Firefox, hopefully that's going to really push it forward and become the standard much sooner. You know, we've really buried the lead, though, with the new Firefox 67 release. This is what really matters, is there's this new support for smart dark mode. 
there's this prefers color scheme media feature now that allows sites to adapt their styles to match the preferences for the browser. So if you come to a website with dark mode enabled for Firefox, the website will load a dark version. I think that's so cool. And there is a great dark theme now for Firefox. And I'm just really happy because I love dark mode for the web. <laughs> so yeah, and you may have predicted that dark mode was going to be the thing for this year. Hmm. I know. So this is just wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Well, it does show that they're in tune with what's going on because the whole tech industry seems to be going over to dark mode. Hey, it's easy on the eyes, man. It's easy on the eyes. There's one kind of major change that landed in 67 that is messing with some folks. If you launched Firefox 67 and your add-ons were gone, your history was gone, all of your customizations were gone, that's being caused because the browser created a new profile for 67 instead of using your original one. This isn't a super uncommon problem. Firefox keeps each set of user data in their own profiles, and starting in 67, Mozilla has switched to individual profiles for each installed version of Firefox. Yeah, which could be super handy if you've got the beta or nightly or whatever alongside the standard one and you want to have a separate profile. But it seems that that has caused issues for quite a number of users. It is nice because sometimes those nightlies or those betas don't maybe support an extension or et cetera. There's lots of reasons why you might want to have that. <laughs> it's a necessary change, but yeah, it's, it's causing some workflow disruption. It is possible to rescue your old profile, though, so all is not lost here. It's only a few clicks away, but it still must be very annoying. Thankfully, it hasn't happened to me, but I've read quite a lot of reports of it happening to people. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit embarrassing, but it's not quite on the scale of the, uh, the last time. People lost all their extensions, but let's not dwell too much on that, eh? No, hot off the mirrors in Germany, we have new releases of OpenSUSE, so let's dwell on that for a moment. A brand new release of 15.1 OpenSUSE Leap. Yeah, this is OpenSUSE Leap, which is their snapshot version, not to be confused with Tumbleweed, which is the rolling release. This is much closer to the Enterprise Edition, Slee, as they call it. And 15.1 really seems to be about pulling in features that just make it a great stable workstation. Lots of notes in here about improvements to YAST functionality. And they've backported the graphics hardware stack in the 4.19 Linux kernel to the kernel that ships in Leap, which is based on 4.12. And that's, that's pretty nice because that includes improved support for the AMD Vega chipset now in a, in a stable enterprise-style distribution. Also in here is GNOME 3.26 and the long-term support version of Plasma 5.12. You can also install XFCE if you like. And of course, Leap out of the box works with x86-64, but there's all kinds of now what they call deployment scenarios for physical machines, virtual machines, and they've got some cloud and container discussion in here as well, and they talk about the community's work to port it to ARM 64 and power architectures. And then last but not least, nice to see a line in here about OpenSUSE for the Raspberry Pi now being simplified into one image that is very customizable. I downloaded it. I have it uh, on my desktop upstairs right now. I'm going to give it a go here pretty soon. If I uh, have anything to report, I might share my additional hands-on thoughts in Linux Unplugged this week. But initially, from a I want a stable enterprise-grade workstation perspective, this looks like a super solid release, and it's nice to see them bring some of those graphic stack stuff back to their 4.12 kernel, and to see it based around 5.12 Plasma, which I'm running here in the studio, is a fantastic release of the Plasma desktop. Nice long-term support stack there. It's interesting that OpenSUSE really is there to try and hook you in and then 
they can upsell you on the Enterprise Edition because you can update directly from an OpenSUSE 15.1 release to SUSE Linux Enterprise 15.1. And that update is seamless, supposedly. So they're quite transparent about that, that this is just to hook you in. And I like that. I like how they're just straightforward about it. You know, this is our community edition, but hey, if you want to pay us for support, then it's really easy. Yeah. No pressure, kick the tires, see how, see it, drive it, put it in production, make sure it's a good fit. And then if you decide that it's valuable enough that you want to upgrade to a paid support version, well, here's our phone number. I think it's actually a, a very clever move. This release comes at a very pivotal time for SUSE. Right now, as we record, OpenSUSEcon 2019 is happening. They're up there tweeting about it right now. But the other significant thing happening around this release is that OpenSUSE is considering changing their governance model, or at least they're looking at their options. Yeah, it's very, very early days for this, but they're looking around at the reality of this situation. SUSE keeps getting bored, doesn't it? And at the moment, they are completely dependent on the parent company, and things are working absolutely fine at the moment. They're perfectly happy, but who knows what's going to happen next time they get sold, which does seem inevitable. They are owned by an investment firm at the moment, and maybe that company isn't going to be necessarily as friendly to the OpenSUSE side of things. And so if they had more independent governance, then maybe they'd be in a stronger position. And so that's the discussion that they're having now. And because it's all open source, it's all out in the open. But I think it's going to be a long time, really, before anything happens. We're talking about months at minimum here. Well, good on them. That's, then that is exactly when they should be having this conversation. And also, good on them for how frank this conversation is. And the message seems pretty clear. Today, uh, as things stand, they're not really an issue. And they're pretty happy with the public commitment that SUSE's made to open SUSE. But there is, like you said, that, that really kind of honest underpinning line here that says, you know, it was an equity firm. And they're going to make them into a valuable purchase again for a reason, to sell them to somebody that's willing to spend money on them. And what happens then? Does that commitment change at that point? Because we don't know who the new owners would be. They could be somebody great or not. And how does that affect us as a long-term project who has commitments we want to make to our users? I think it's brilliant they're thinking about that. Absolutely necessary. And honestly, if I was a daily driver of OpenSUSE, seeing that the team is willing to have this frank of a conversation around the issue and have it in the public would give me a lot of comfort to know that their head's in the right space and they're planning for the future. And they're doing it respectfully, too. I think the conversation is respectful, their timing is right, and the whole thing is, I think, being done really well. Also, credit to uh, Richard Brown, who seems to be very open to having this conversation and listening to what matters to these people. And he's not necessarily validating all of the concerns, but he's listening. And I think that's a big credit to him as well. Yeah, and thinking about governance structure and making proper plans is something that a lot of Linux distros could afford to do. Unfortunately, it seems that didn't happen with Antigos, and so that project is shutting down, and pretty quickly. Ooh, boy, this hit me hard. You linked me to this. I think um, I was just about to go on air to record last week's Linux Unplugged, and this dropped, and it was like a ton of bricks had landed in the studio. I also, I have to say, I really respect and appreciate the way they're communicating this. While I'm supremely disappointed because I think it was a really great distribution, they're being forefront. They're not dragging this thing on for a year. You know, they're not ghosting out. They write, we came to this decision because we believe that continuing to neglect the project would be a huge disservice to the community. And they're right. 
So handling it this way, explaining what's going on, and telling them what the exit strategy is, which they write, soon we will release an update that will remove the Anagros repos from your system, along with any Antagros-specific packages that no longer serve a purpose due to the project ending. Yeah, so if you're running Antigross, you're just going to be running Vanilla Arch, so you're not completely left out in the cold at all. You're still going to get all your updates and everything. But it is still disappointing to see this happen. Although there is a move to potentially carry it on under a different name. That's right. When one project closes a door, another opens a window, Joe. It's called Endeavor. This is a post over on the Antigross forum, and they write that uh, they're going to continue on in the spirit of Antigross. And um, the first stage is to set up a spot for the community to get together. I guess I applaud them. I think um, if I could go all Pacific Northwest artist on you for a moment, though, I feel like they should let Antigross go, man. Like, let the art die and go create something new, man. <laughs> go create your own thing. Yeah. Well, we say it's called Endeavor. That's only the code name for now. They do want the community to help them come up with a new name, and a few things have been tossed around, but it doesn't look like they've decided yet. But this does feel a little bit like kind of clutching at straws, and perhaps the people involved in this don't really understand how much effort is involved with running a distro. It is an enormous amount of effort, and always people will jump up and say, hey, yeah, I can carry it on, but then when the reality dawns on them, you do have to wonder whether they will actually follow through with this. You kind of have to give them the benefit of the doubt at this stage, but I'm not massively hopeful for it, I'm afraid. Yeah, now the pragmatist in me says, there's a couple of nice things that Anagros brings to the table. Number one, you have a graphical installer called Cinchi that's actually pretty legit, and they could continue to use that. It's open source. And just really putting that on top of what would otherwise be a fairly vanilla Arch install, that's great. If if Endeavor turns into that, if they can avoid the whole custom repos, custom packages, because um, that is actually where Anagros got a little off in the weeds sometimes anyways. So if they could avoid all of that and continue to use Cinchi just to give people a, a nice 10-minute way to install Arch and pick your desktop and be done, I think it's nice. People always discount these kind of distributions. And you always get people saying all the time, and this has been the number one comment since this news came out, is uh, Arch isn't that bad, just install it yourself. What people don't appreciate is, A, that's true, and B, it doesn't matter. Straight up doesn't matter. Does not matter at all. There is just a simple barrier to entry where closing that gap, closing that tiny 5 to 10% gap makes all of the difference in the world. That's why jails have been around for decades, but Docker is a huge deal. They made a, they close that, the 10% difference often makes a significant one. And a graphical installer that you boot into in a live environment that lets you check a box for ZFS, gives you forms to fill out all of your users, and then you can choose one of the great open source desktop environments from a list, and then you hit a couple of buttons, and you'll walk back in 10 minutes, and you have a fully up-to-date, ready-to-go Arch install. I don't care who you are. That's convenient, and it's that convenience that people want. That's why people buy apps in app stores. It's convenience. It's nice. It's simple. They got other things to do with their day. That was the gap. Anagros filled. Yeah. And to some extent, Manjaro has filled that as well. And um, uh, call it a coincidence, but this week, Manjaro tweeted that they've had over a million downloads so far this year. So that's only just over one quarter's worth. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty impressive. 
That is. People love Manjaro. And um, I'm sure it's a total coincidence since Anna Gross mentioned they had 900,000 downloads since 2014. I bet you it's a <laughs> total coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there are a couple of other simple ways and scripts and stuff to install Arch. So I don't think we necessarily need Endeavor to continue and actually work out. There are simple ways to do it. But um, I, I don't know, Antikos was just the go-to, wasn't it? Like, if you want Manjaro and the customizations that they have, then you go down that route. But if you want something more vanilla, then you go for Antikos. Yeah, and you're right. There's 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 plenty of different ways to install Arch that are very quick and simple. Um, and that's why I think maybe Endeavor doesn't need to be a thing. That's, you know, when I put the uh, Pacific Northwest hat on, which is nice, man. It's actually got a wood veneer front. I'm not kidding. I got a Pacific. <laughs> it really is cool. It's a ball cap with a wood front. Um, that's why I feel like just let it go. Like it's been, it was here. The market didn't really seem to respond super strong. Just let it go. But the pragmatist says, well, that Cinchy is nice, but there are a lot of, there's like, I did a, like a, a look around and I saw a couple just within a couple of minutes of searching and then, uh, some extra research was done by the team and we found another handful of distributions that are basically vanilla arch with an easy to use installer. Some of them are command line. Some of them are graphical. Yeah, maybe they should just let it go. Unlike Google, who will not let go of Google Glass, we keep thinking that it's going to die, but it seems to just keep coming back. I mean, maybe there's a good crossover here. Like, you could get Flare that says, I'm an Arch user, and people that have Google Glass could see that Flare above your head. You see? There could be a crossover. (laughs) (laughs) Just get it out of the way right there when you walk up. Yeah, it's back, Joe. Google is ready to have you purchase Google Glass Enterprise Edition 2 if you're willing to spend $1,000, which is actually a discount from the 1500 the last Enterprise Edition was. This one has a faster processor, an improved camera. It jumps from, uh, I believe, 5 megapixels to now it's at 8 megapixels. Still 720p video, but it looks better. And probably the biggest standout difference is you can get it with these Smith Optics safety frames. So it you know, kind of looks like you're supposed to be on a construction site or something. I think they're telling us who this is targeted at, Joe. We did actually talk about this back in March on the show, um, but at the time that was just kind of speculation. Yeah, we saw the rumors, and it did seem like back then they were making a straight beeline for business. Yeah, and here we are with the actual reality of it, and sure enough, yeah, it is very much aimed at enterprise, and it's actually slightly higher spec than everyone had thought back then. Right, so not only does it have those nicer specs, but on the software side, Google is touting in sort of a big way that this is now, quote-unquote, easier to develop for because it's now built on Android. I thought the previous versions were, but apparently it was its own custom OS. And they continue, it can now leverage existing APIs as well as, and this is a big one, Android Enterprise Mobile Device Management for Scaled Deployments. So I think one could pretty easily see how this could be used by different manufacturing plants, say like a Tesla or some other modern place that's working with technology like this. You get a fleet of these things, and then you use that central management system to flash work-specific applications for the for the work of the day. I, I actually could see this being useful. It's weird and creepy, obviously, because it's a Google device strapped to your face that's always connected to the internet. We have to make that disclaimer, obviously. But when they focus on business like this, the use cases become a little more obvious. Yeah, you do have to wonder if they will eventually make that crossover back into the consumer space. But I think that ship has sailed, really. I think this is just them completely pivoting and realizing that there is a market for it where 
it kind of doesn't matter. Like at work, everyone's on camera all the time anyway, and you're all being watched by bosses and stuff. So it doesn't really matter that privacy aspect of it. Whereas out and about in the real world, people are just not really going to go for this. So it's it's kind of weird to see it live on. And I don't know, $1,000, it still seems very expensive for what you're actually getting there. So I don't know how popular it's going to be, really. Maybe they can do some bulk deals with enterprises, but I don't know, I think that it's just still a bit too pricey. That was always my concern with it in the first place. Not even really the privacy stuff. It was just, I'm not spending $1,000 or pounds on this thing. Well, for me, I was always waiting for the Huawei edition to come out, but I guess that won't be happening now. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) probably not. Maybe they'll run KaiOS, though. The rate things are going, this might be the third OS. Yeah, it's possible. And this week, KaiOS got another $50 million of funding and announced that it's hit 100 million handsets that have been shipped. Soak that in for a second. 100 million shipped devices across 100 countries. And by the way, that new $50 million infusion brings their total fundraising up to $72 million. You'll recall the last time we talked about them, Google had just invested $22 million into the business. Yeah, yeah. And so this is the continuation of Firefox OS, of course. And that, again, is something I didn't expect to see live on. But this KaiOS seems to be going from strength to strength. I actually did have a hands-on with it on the uh, the Nokia is it the 8110? I can't remember, the banana, the Matrix phone anyway. And um, I wasn't really very surprised by it. It was just exactly what I expected, which is like somewhere in between a feature phone and a smartphone. It had apps to some extent, but didn't have a touchscreen. And so navigation was really clunky on it, but it was a very cheap device. So I can see the market they're going for, and that market is not in Europe or the US. It's in developing countries. And well, obviously, it must be doing well. It's funny how up my alley a phone like this. So first of all, they have like the uh, the banana phone styles, but they also have like the traditional flip phones. I miss having a flip phone where I could flip it closed, put it in my pocket. And I don't need a ton of stuff. In fact, in a way, I'd like to have a simpler phone, but I wouldn't mind still having navigation. I wouldn't mind having YouTube on there as well. So it's, I actually... I would probably consider buying one of these if they sold them here in the West. I think it's also an interesting uh, thought exercise to just talk about the numbers again one more time. But keep the Librem 5 in mind now when we talk about these numbers. They've shipped to 100 million devices across 100 countries. They've raised $72 million in funds just to do this one thing, just to do this. And they're not even a blip on anyone's radar. In, in our circles. I just think we don't even have a appreciation as average users to the scale of the mobile market. I'll give you another number that's kind of staggering right now. It's estimated that today there are around 1.5 billion feature phone users active in the market. Feature phones still account for almost 25% of all handset shipments in Q3 of last year alone which works out to be about a $28 billion market opportunity. I think we have a hard time conceptualizing the size of this market and the scale in which a company must reach in order to even have what would be considered somewhat sustainable success. (laughs) And when you think about that, and Purism's also building their own operating system, they're building laptops, they're trying to do hosted services, 
they're trying to build a phone. They're also trying to free the firmware on Intel management systems. They're trying to make applications convergent across their custom desktop and their phone OS. Plus, they also have to support the devices they ship at the end of the day. And now the service they've launched. It's, it's a massive undertaking. And the scale of success in which you must reach to even really become sustainable, I think, is beyond our comprehension right now. But we're about to learn. Well, yeah. I mean, imagine KaiOS was just totally independent and not based on Firefox OS. We probably wouldn't have even heard of it. No. Or if it hadn't gotten $22 million from Google alone. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's raised $72 million now. It takes a lot of money to do this, and it takes a big team, and it takes a lot of deals. It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating market, and I think we have a hard time conceptualizing, especially when it goes to anything outside the West. That's true. I would have loved to have seen KaiOS or Firefox OS continue on, though, in these types of handsets. Imagine one of these things, 80 to $100 with a day or two battery life that gives you basic connectivity and functionality. Man, I, I'd be all over that device. I'd, I'd buy that. Well, you might buy it, but you wouldn't use it very long. I think I would on the weekends, you know? It'd be like my weekend phone, Joe. I'd be that guy. I'm telling you, man, I used it for a day or two, and it was so frustrating. Wow, okay. Uh, you just You don't realize how dependent you are on a proper smartphone until you try and use one of these. Okay. And uh, fair enough, if you live in a country, you know, you don't have much money, and this is all you've got available to you, then it's way better than nothing. But we are very spoiled by Android phones and iPhones and everything. So I, I'm telling you, you would not enjoy using it. Okay, fair point, because here's what I just started thinking about was – Um, I think I'm romanticizing the good old days of my cell phones because I do the same thing with my computers. Now, in 2019, if the internet goes out, my computer is like freaking worthless. Like there's hardly any, like I can poke around on it for a while, but I can't install software. I can't update my games. I can't really do anything, right? I just, it's kind of, without the internet, it's kind of worthless. And I imagine that's kind of what one of those phones would sort of feel like. Yeah, pretty much. Well, rounding out the news this week is something from GitHub. They have announced GitHub Sponsors, which they say is a new way to contribute to open source. Yeah, not content with trying to own the whole developer space in terms of code. Now Microsoft wants to get involved with how people get paid for open source, which is a very cynical way to look at what is ultimately potentially a great new revenue stream for open source developers. But I'm going to be cynical nonetheless. (laughs) <laughs> There's always an angle. There is always an angle. Even even when they do something pretty remarkable, at least for the first year, they've done a couple of things that are pretty remarkable. No fees. So everything goes 100% goes to the developer. And they're matching up to 5,000 per sponsor developer in the first year. So I love how like it's beyond gracious. It's it's more generous than any other model out there, anything Patreon could hope to do. And yet people still still very skeptical. I guess I guess stay skeptical. It's it's healthy everybody. The basics of how this thing is going to work is anyone with a GitHub account can sponsor anyone with a quote sponsored developer profile through a reoccurring monthly payment. You can choose different sponsorship tiers and different monthly amounts with benefits that are set by that sponsored developer. Your sponsorship shares your existing billing date and uh, payment method information that you might already have in your GitHub account. Now, right now, today, this is kind of like a future thing. There's a very small number of sponsor developers that are currently participating in what they call a limited beta. Eventually, the goal is anyone who contributes to an open source project is eligible to become a sponsor developer in the future. 
they're not trying to completely control things here because it's really easy to just add a YAML file to your GitHub that has the various places that you want to be supported. And Patreon is one of the supported places, as well as the Community Bridge, which we've talked about before from the Linux Foundation. It's not open source, but uh, yeah, well, let's gloss over that. But it's not purely a GitHub thing which is nice to see. I mean, clearly they want to kind of centralize it around GitHub, but they are giving other options there. So I, I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm being cynical just for the sake of it, just to kind of play up to my role. But I, I don't know, I do have to wonder what Microsoft's end game is, what's in it for them. Maybe it's just good PR for them, and good PR is always good for any company. Maybe. Um, or maybe this has nothing to do with Microsoft. Maybe this is just something the folks in GitHub saw an opportunity to do. Who knows, really? That's probably a little naive, but we don't really know the full story. Perhaps we can look into it. Right now, um, I think they're really only taking sponsorships, too, from individuals, which feels like it's good. It's a good start, but it's not really going to change anybody's life. And that's why I'm not like buying into this whole, like it's a, it's a way to take over the finance of open source. Let's not kid ourselves here. This is going to be coffee and pizza money for these people. We're not talking like wages here. Now, if GitHub came up with a way to entice companies to invest part of their marketing budget into developers so that that way the company got some sort of public recognition for supporting open source, Ah, then you could then you could change things because individuals can't contribute a lot, but even companies with not a lot of money to donate generally have a lot of money in the marketing budget. And if you can get ahead of them, and it becomes a common practice to sponsor open source projects where there's some sort of I mean, there would have to be a return on investment that everybody's comfortable with. But then we'd start seeing serious money come into the system. Then I would probably buy it's the conspiracy to change funding of open source because that would actually make a difference. But until something like that comes along, this, this is coffee money for folks. And it's really good to see it. And I, I'll probably participate um, because, hell, I mean, if I can at least get somebody a coffee or a beer, at least that's something. But we're not, we're not changing lives here yet. Well, not yet, but I'm sure that's the plan long term. And whether that does mean proper corporate sponsorship or just individuals, Remains to be seen. It's very early days for this, as we said. As they say, Joe. But uh, we'll keep our ears to the ground and learn more as this thing develops, because it's brand new right now. But your Jupiter Broadcasting team is on it. Just like we're on all of the stories in Linux and the open source world every single week. And you can get this here show at linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe, which has all the different ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. We have a lot going on, like Texas Linux Fest next weekend. You can stay up to date with meetups and dinners and study groups at meetup.com slash Broadcasting. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. See you later.